your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an Internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer. This is today's Cancer in the News. Prostate cancer experts urged Congress and the incoming Obama administration on Wednesday to make a major research commitment to find better detection methods, including what they call a manogram. Their idea involves a sophisticated ultrasound, magnetic resonance imaging, or other methods to find dangerous prostate tumors akin to the common mammogram scans used to find breast tumors. Advocates say that in order to coordinate this effort, $500 million in research funding is needed over five years. Many men now have a blood test measuring levels of a protein produced by the prostate gland called prostate-specific antigen, or PSA. Elevated PSA levels may indicate prostate cancer, but benign conditions can also raise the levels. Men with elevated PSA often must have an invasive biopsy to test prostate tissue for cancer. Only about 25 to 30 percent of men who have the biopsy actually turn out to have prostate cancer, and experts believe that many cancers detected after PSA screening are so minor that they would never present a threat if left untreated. There is a controversy among cancer researchers about whether PSA screening actually saves lives, with many arguing that it leads to unnecessary surgical and radiation treatment for minor cancers, causing negative side effects. And because there is no reliable imaging technique to guide the selection of tissues for the biopsies, doctors take random plugs of prostate blindly and may miss tumors. Experts say that doctors need to be able to find the cancers that are there that are going to be significant and only target those. More than two dozen experts from institutions, including Johns Hopkins University, Harvard Medical School, the University of Chicago, the University of Miami, and Stanford University joined the effort. They signed letters to Congress and the U.S. National Institutes of Health, which funds medical research, saying more accurate imaging technology would lead to better guidance for diagnosis, biopsy, and minimally invasive treatment. Researchers said there needs to be a better initial screening test than the PSA test, perhaps a new blood or urine test focused on another biological indicator of prostate cancer. In the United States, 29,000 men die of prostate cancer each year, making it the number two cause of cancer death in men behind lung cancer. It is the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in men in the world and kills about 254,000 men a year. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. Every week on the show, we provide helpful tips and information on issues that affect 
people with cancer and their loved ones, whether you're looking for ways to reduce stress, uh, improve your diet, or you simply want news of, of cancer treatments coming down the pipeline, frankly speaking about cancer has been your answer. But every now and then it's important to get back to some everyday basics and ask questions such as what is considered quality cancer care or what kinds of questions should I be asking my doctor or what do I do when I get an unexpected fever or other symptoms. Um, all of these issues and more make the topic of coping with cancer an ongoing learning process. On today's show, we're going to delve into some of these questions and learn more about ways in which the standard of social and emotional cancer care is assessed and how it can and should be improved. We are joined by two wonderful guests from our own wellness community family uh, who both bring important perspectives to our show today. First, we have Dr. Mitch Golant, a Ph.D. psychologist and Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community. Welcome, Mitch. Glad to be here, Kim. And we're also joined by Dr. Joanne Buzoglo, also a Ph.D. psychologist who is the Wellness Community's Senior Director of Research. Joanne is also a cancer survivor. Thanks for being here with us, Joanne. It's wonderful to be here. So we're thrilled to have you both on the show today, and I know our listeners are eager to hear this um, discussion, so we're going to jump right in. Mitch, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit about the, the Institute of Medicine and describe the importance of the report that they put out in 2007 called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient, Meeting Psychosocial Health Needs. Tell us a, about the report and, and, and why it's important for our listeners today. Well, Kim, you know, number one, we have to understand who the Institute of Medicine is and why a report from them is to be listened to and paid attention to by mm -hmm. all of us, patients, caregivers, professionals. The Institute of Medicine is part of the National Academies and part of the National Institute of Health to look at and investigate important questions so that in the future care can be improved for patients and families alike. And in this report, it really focuses on the whole patient, and the whole patient, of course, includes the family, their relationships, but really meeting their psychological and emotional needs. And, and what this report says is, is two critical things. One, health is determined not ju just by biology, Kim. It's determined also by emotions, behaviors, and social relationships. And the second thing, which is good quality health care, must pay attention to these psychological and emotional problems and provide services to help better meet all of the needs of the illnesses, all the needs of the illness, and whatever underlying health problems might occur. So you're saying that how we, how we feel psychologically, how we feel emotionally, how we feel in our relationships is going to have an impact on our health? Exactly, and that it's not just by biology. You have to treat both in order to get complete and full quality, quality cancer care. So if we're stressed out, for example, yeah. we're, not, we're not in a place, let's say, where we can do the best job in battling our cancer. Well, well just, just for a moment, Kim, when you're diagnosed with cancer, that experience is as if everything shuts down and the ability to take in new information, to make treatment decisions, let alone the impact of the cancer diagnosis itself and the treatments associated with it, bring with it many, many emotional and psychological issues. And this report underscores the importance of treating them along with the biology of the cancer. So, Joanne, let's bring you into the conversation here. So we, when people, I think when people think of cancer research, 
they think of, of medical research, right? They think of clinical research, studying new drugs, studying new chemotherapy, studying new ways to, to, uh, to fight the cancer. But is research also being done to study the social and emotional needs of cancer patients? Absolutely, and has been been done for quite a number of years. In fact, the National Institute of Health uh, um, founded a Office of Cancer uh, Survivorship, understanding that we really need to understand the emotional needs and how to treat the whole patient. Um, what's I think one of the big questions right now is we do have some evidence that it's important to maintain healthy lifestyles, that... that um, how that that how you feel and how, that your level of distress really does have an impact on your ability to make good treatment decisions and your ability to manage your life while you're going through a cancer uh, while you're going through cancer treatment and, and beyond. And I think our big question here at the wellness community is how can we bring the highest quality care that is evidence based to cancer patients and their families in their communities and also online. Um, the wellness community actually launched the Research and Training Institute in October, um, and it responds to many of the recommendations made by the Institute of Medicine that Mitch just mentioned. And I think the idea is that the good quality research that's, that's being done at academic centers and the kinds of interventions that are being developed need to move from the academic centers to the community where people live and breathe and, and where they're being treated. And the wellness community is in just is just so poised, is an unusual position, having facilities across across the country mm-hmm. and, um, and online, where where we are in a position where we're really thinking about how can we best deliver the you know these interventions that can really address the needs, the psychosocial needs of cancer patients. I'm sure glad you said that, Joanne, because. What's so critical about this is that the Institute of Medicine report talks about really two pieces. One piece that would improve care of patients across the board is better doctor-patient communication. And the report also says the best place for patients and families to get that skill, acquire that skill, is through the community. And the community is the most trusted resource for education and information, especially about how to care for yourself and how to communicate with your doctor. What do you mean when you say the community, Mitch? Uh, it's a great question. What, we're, what the report talks about and, and what we're thinking about is the community-based organizations that exist currently in the United States are the most trusted sources of information and support for people with cancer. The Institute of Medicine uh, recognizes that and recommends the utilization of those services and integrating that care. That's why, you know, Joanne's comment about the need to take this incredibly important, valuable research and bring it to the community at large where most people with cancer are treated. You know, Kim, 85% of people with cancer are treated not in comprehensive cancer centers, but in community hospitals, private practices. In fact, 50% of patients are treated in, in practices, oncology practices of five physicians or less. That's so, what we mean by community. So we, 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 we probably think about when people are getting treated for cancer, they're going to these big kind of famous cancer centers that we all 
know about, and I won't list them, but, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of those big kind of well-known big cancer centers across the country and places all over the country. But what you're saying is, in fact, that only a few, a smaller percentage of patients are going to those big famous cancer centers. Most people are going to hospitals, to oncologists, to doctors that are really right down the block from where they live. Exactly, exactly. And for us, the wellness community as one example and through the vehicle of the Research and Training Institute in particular, to be able to take state-of-the-art research and apply it to the community to benefit whatever the patient's needs are in their home, in their community, whether it's, you know, in a rural area or in a much larger uh, suburban or urban area, but also online, that there's tremendous opportunities for bringing the messages of the Institute of Medicine report to patients where they live and work and, and get care. Joanne, you mentioned something. You said that, that patients need to get care that is evidence-based. Can you tell our listeners what that means, evidence-based? Yes, that's a really good question, Kim. Um, evidence-based means that, that whatever program that's being developed, that there's some research behind it, there's some evaluation, so that we know that what what we're delivering, what's being delivered to the patient is of good quality and is really helping the patient. So it's very important that that we're gathering data at all times about how this is helping, how this how can we be better helping to cancer patients and their families. I think that it's it, it's very important that we have an understanding um, so that we can really improve the quality of the kinds of programs we're able to deliver to cancer patients. So, Joanne, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but uh, let's, let's, let's say that I see, you know, I live in a community and I see an organization down the block that has an educational seminar on uh, lung cancer, and I have lung cancer or my husband has lung cancer. Um, so aside from me just kind of getting some information and learning, what, what are some of the other benefits that there might be for me there in a, in a program like that? Well, first... Just to be, just to hear from experts is very helpful. I think it also can be very reassuring. Um, the more information you have, the more power, the more empowered you are as a cancer patient. But also to be in a place where there are other people who are also facing some of the similar challenges that you are as a cancer patient or as a, or as a caregiver, as a family member. I mean, one of the things that can happen when you get a cancer diagnosis is, you, is that you can feel isolated. And I think that it's very important that, that, that you get as much support as you possibly can as you go through some of these really difficult times, you know, having to make cancer, make treatment decisions and figuring out how you can talk to other, how, do you, how can you best talk to your doctor about the things that are important to you. So um, I really think that there's a lot of benefit from coming to a program where you know that you're getting high-quality information that's carefully vetted and that's, that, is deli- that is delivered from experts, and also that you can really benefit from the support that you can get from other people who are going through some of the similar things you are. So today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we have two great guests with us who are talking uh, about coping with cancer, uh, who are talking about how you as a patient, as a caregiver, as a survivor, can become uh, educated, can become empowered, 
can connect with other people who are also dealing uh, with a cancer diagnosis to really help you battle the disease and uh, to help you cope with what can be a very difficult and really uh, uh, a life-altering experience. So we are going to take uh, just a quick break right here, and we will be right back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thank you. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're joined by Dr. Mitch Goland, Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community, and Dr. Joanne Bizzoglo, Senior Director of Research also at the Wellness Community. We've been discussing the importance of emotional support in order to effectively cope with a cancer diagnosis, whether you're a patient, uh, a loved one, a survivor. Um, Joanne, you bring to this conversation a pretty unique perspective as both a researcher uh, and as a cancer survivor. Tell us a little bit about your own personal cancer experience. 
Well, I'm actually very happy to say that it's sort of hard for me to believe that I was diagnosed with cancer, I think it was over 20 years ago. Wow. And um, things have changed since then. I was, uh, I was treated at a, at a renowned uh, comprehensive cancer center, received great treatment, and yet, and yet I was really left to, to cope on my own when it came to what it meant to get a cancer diagnosis, what, you know, um, I really had very, there, was, there were no support groups. There was no one I could really talk to. I happened to have been a young adult cancer survivor, mm-hmm. um, which represents its own challenges. I was 28, mm-hmm. and so I was different from my peers. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a very supportive family and great friends. But I was really found that I was on my own when it came to what this cancer diagnosis meant to me, how it altered my life, and... Um, it was really a turning point because was at that, that point I decided that what I wanted to do was to be able to bring the support and really understand what kind of support is needed. Um, and I decided to become a clinical psychologist at that point and really dedicate myself to um, understanding what are the psychosocial consequences and what, how can we really help people who are going through, um, you know, at a time of very scary diagnosis and treatment. So your own personal experience really guided some of your career choices. Absolutely. No wow, that's, about it. that's incredible. That's incredible. So, Mitch, you've been with the, uh, speaking of 20 years, 25 <laughs> years, you've been uh, with the wellness community for over 25 years now. Um, yeah. You've certainly obviously seen a lot in that time. Um, tell us what, what kinds of changes you've witnessed over those years regarding the role of emotional support you know, as a part of cancer care, what did it look like 25 years ago compared to what that looks like today? Well, uh, 25 years ago, uh, as we look back, cancer and the emotional side of cancer, I, I remember uh, uh, in the early days, uh, people with cancer would, a- would ask us, uh, you know, would say something like, I have cancer, you know, I- I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, I think our world has changed significantly through the role of advocacy. I mean, we've we've seen and bearing witness to to the huge uh, uh, growth linked to uh, the breast cancer movement, mm-hmm. underscoring the need for so many aspects of care, uh, mammography, uh, forms of breast self-exam, and that really sets the stage for where we probably are today, Kim, and the biggest change is, is that emotional and psychological support are essential. But in truth, we have to be able to help patients figure out what it is, the kind of support that they need. And what we're looking at, actually, is thinking about screening all patients for psychological and emotional distress. Since the IOM report is saying that we need to be able to address those needs in order for full and good treatment to occur for the patient. Well, so what, what does that mean, Mitch? Screen, so I'm, I'm a patient, you're saying yeah. screening. For, I know I get screening for breast cancer. I go in and get a, yeah. get a mammography, get screening for cervical cancer through a, a pap smear. What do you mean in terms of screening to understand what my emotional issues well, well, are? That's, that's a great question, Kim, and it really underscores how far we've come. Because if you ask most cancer patients, you know, are, are, are you depressed? Are you anxious? 
you know, they'll let you know that really what they're experiencing is a huge amount of distress. Sometimes it's depression, sometimes it's anxiety, sometimes it's fatigue, sometimes it's problems having to do with sleep. But they are experiencing a variety of problems that are linked to the treatment of cancer. Mm. And to be able to screen for what are those elements so that those elements, those problems can be solved. Let's give you one other example. Let's say someone's having trouble getting to their doctor's appointment. Well, we we know that transportation to the appointment is a critical feature in order to get good care. You can't get good care. You can't get there. Unless you can get there. Yeah. And, and to screen for that, to know what the problems are on the front end of treatment is only going to improve care, but it's also going to improve what we're really talking about, doctor-patient communication. And screening provides the information, the the uh, uh, method by which good care can occur. But if I'm in a, a small oncology practice, maybe two or three mm-hmm. oncologists, I mean, I don't think they're going to have the kinds of things that you're talking about. They're not going to be able to help me with my transportation. They're not going to be able to help me with my depression or or uh, help me with some of maybe the issues I'm dealing with at work. Um, you're, you're, you're Where do I get that? Where do I get that? You're absolutely right. And, and what's beautiful about the Institute of Medicine report is it says to those practices that local community-based organizations are the number one essential resource for de- for helping patients get those needs met. So it's about connecting the doctors, the oncologists, yes. with the nonprofits, with the community resources. That's right. It's integrating care. Mm-hmm. The idea that patients need to be connected to not only other patients, but they need to be connected to other resources in the community. Mm-hmm. And organizations like the wellness community are an essential part of that care. So, um, Joanne, I, I want to, uh, again, we, we have some language that we use sometimes, and I want to get some clarity. So sometimes we talk about the cancer continuum. What is that? And what are some of the emotional challenges that patients face from the day, let's say, I'm diagnosed with cancer and to maybe a year or several years after I finish up my my cancer treatment? What does that mean, That the, the continuum? That's a really important point, Kim. I think one of the big things we're learning about cancer is that it's no longer an acute illness. It's really, lots of times now we talk about cancer as a chronic condition. And that's because people live for many, many years past their cancer diagnosis, and, and that will only increase as cancer treatments improve. Um, so we talk about the cancer co- continuum starting at the time in which you're diagnosed, and there are many challenges. We all know what it, what it can be like to have the shock of a diagnosis, particularly with cancer, which has so much meaning attached to it. And just just adjusting to having a diagnosis and how that's going to alter your life and having to make changes in your, you know, in your life and your plan, how do you communicate it to yourself, to your family, to, to your doctors. And then almost immediately, soon after, you've got to make treatment decisions. Again, as cancer treatments are improving, part of it is also that now there are many more options for patients. Just think about breast cancer. I mean, many times patients have to make a choice between, um, you know, lumpectomy and radiation versus a mastectomy. And a patient now, is, there's something called shared decision-making where they really have 
it, where it's really important for the patient to figure out what is going to be the best treatment for them, what's going to meet their needs. Well, there are many challenges with that, you know, um, and it can be... You're saying that that burden's on the patient to, to, to well, make I'm those choices? I'm saying that, it's, that the patient more and more has, is, takes a much more active role in selecting the t- treatment that's going to best suit them. Mm. And, you know, whereas... I want to say in the old days that maybe the doctor told you, oh, you need to go do this. Yeah. Now it's, it's much more of a discussion. And with that, you know, it's, it's, hard to know, it's hard to know what to do best, and it means you've got to sort through some of your own thought, values and goals and what's going to be the best treatment plan for you. Mm-hmm. And people need support around that. Yeah, that's a good point, Joanne, because every stage of treatment has its own set of decisions and challenges. Mm-hmm. Just think about it. The diagnosis, oh, my God, the, what that experience is like. The treatments, the side effects from treatments, the long-term follow-up care, recurrence, the possibility of recurrence, how to deal with pain, how to deal with all the different aspects of care, changes over time, and the patient and the family is central with the doctor to make those kinds of decisions. And that's the continuum of care. And if it's a chronic illness, for God's sakes, that means that these issues are going to go on across the lifespan. And as we age, as other conditions pop up, cardiovascular disease that might come as a result of just aging or a part of the treatments, or, or diabetes or other chronic illnesses that emerge have to be considered as part of the care. Mm-hmm. It's a big Big discussion, Kim, around continuum of care. But Mitch, what, let's say, um, and we're going to move to a, a break in just a couple minutes. But let's say, you know, I'm, I was, uh, tr- you know, treated for cancer. Let's say I treated for breast cancer. I had surgery. Uh, you know, I had chemotherapy. Luckily, it was caught kind of early. And uh, after my chemo, they pretty much tell me that the the, the cancer's gone. Um, aren't I done then? At that point, don't I just kind of move, move on with my life and kind of get back into the groove? Well, <laughs> no, and yeah, and yes. The the yes is, of course, if the, there's there's no question that you want to return to to your life. But there are questions that our patients tell us, which is, when do I get follow up care? What should I look for? What are some of the side effects from treatment? It, it, it's and these become anxiety provoking questions for patients. And you know, families all want to help their loved one with cancer. And, and, you know, for the family during the intensity of treatment, everybody's a team. But, boy, once treatment is over, it's as if you've fallen off the edge of the earth and you're left in free fall to try to figure out what your life is like after cancer. And some of that includes treatment decisions or follow-up care decisions or side effect decisions. And that's where role of the community-based organization in, in providing a vehicle for, well, softening the landing, easing the landing as you return to your life. So it's about me as a patient learning, learning what, what kind of screenings I need after I get cancer, what to look for in terms of a recurrence, how to prevent a recurrence, those kinds of things? Exactly. You know, the IOM report also talks about a care plan, Kim. Mm-hmm. A care plan, which is like a passport for health. It says to the patient, here are your treatments, here is the, here's what the next steps are, here's what your follow-up is, take this with you wherever you go, and you'll know what to do. We as a culture, we as a society need to help patients feel 
clear have clarity about their future after the illness is over, after the treatments are over. So a care, so a care plan really in, includes all of those components. And all of those elements. All of those components. What I need to do medically, how I think, oh, my gosh, every kind of ache and pain is the cancer coming back, how I deal with maybe I've had some, some pretty scarring surgery that, I, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to kind of deal with body image and things like that. Um, we are uh, going to take a quick break here. Uh, gang, and we will be uh, right back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about coping with cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but... But... But what? But... But... Your butt. Your buttocks. Your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? Mm, no, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out. Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. In 2008, more than 1.4 million people were diagnosed with cancer, and today we've been providing tips and advice on what you can do if you're one of the millions of people 
coping with cancer. We're talking to Dr. Mitch Goland, Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Wellness Community, and our colleague, Dr. Joanne Buzoglo, Senior Director of Research uh, at the Wellness Community. We've been having a great conversation about coping with cancer, the different stages of cancer, and what some of the kind of emotional, uh, psychological issues are um, around a cancer diagnosis. Mitch, we've touched a little bit on kind of dealing with your medical team, your oncologist. Um, why is it so important to have that open communication with your oncologist, that relationship, and also, you know, frankly, to, to, to maintain a good relationship with your primary care physician? Well, uh, Kim, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and uh, I don't think that there is a patient or family that doesn't believe that quality care uh, begins with the doctor. And yet, there's with the diagnosis of cancer, there's this sea of decisions. And it becomes very important for patients to be able to use their time with their doctors, whether it's a primary care physician, especially given long-term care, but also their oncologist, to be able to ask important questions and get answers to those questions as a way of improving care. That's what the IOM report is saying. The number one reason to provide psychological and emotional support for patients is that they'll be able to better communicate their needs and issues to the doctor so that they can get treated and then they get the maximum benefit to their treatments. So, Mitch, what, what should somebody do if they have a, a doctor that they don't really like or if they're not, they don't feel like they have a good open dialogue or communication with their doctor? Exactly. And, and the first step for uh, um, patients and families is to be able to have that conversation with their doctor. If they're not able to, then that's a good reason to consider a second opinion. That's a good reason to consider uh, uh, finding a doctor that's going to work with you. And, and, you know, this question of, of what's the right doctor, boy, it's it's so individualistic because some patients prefer a relationship with their doctor where their doctor tells them this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it. Other patients, and this is about style and preferences, prefer a pilot, co-pilot relationship mm-hmm. with their doctor. And it's not that there's one right and one wrong, right. because we don't want to be in a position uh, of saying that this doctor is wrong or bad or not doing their job, but it's a fit. It's the relationship. And, and getting through treatment, is, is it's critical to have family support, but it's critical also to have this relationship in which you have confidence in your ability to communicate with your doctor, and the treatments that you're receiving are based upon your own needs. So it's really it's about finding that fit. That fit. That's the key. Yeah, yeah. Joanne, um, we're, we're while we're on the subject of uh, of relationships, talking about the relationship with the with the physicians, with the healthcare team, but um, but obviously, cancer can have a tremendous impact on personal relationships, work relationships. Um, what what can can a person do to kind of think about that and address that and to really keep their the relationships, uh, their relationships healthy? First of all, I want to say that when a patient is diagnosed with cancer, they're not the only ones who are affected by the diagnosis. It affects those closest to them. 
and you know it could be um, it can be a brother, it can be a sister, it can be parents, it can be a, your your partner, your husband, your wife, um, and these relationships are very important, I think, in terms of really successfully navigating a, a cancer diagnosis and treatment and, and long-term survivorship. So I think a key to any relationship, just as with the doctor and the patient, is communication. And I think many times um, there's a lot of um, support and energy given to the patient, and often the caregiver, the loved ones, um, are also having to cope with, you know, with tre- tremendous uh, challenges and worries and distress. Often they've got to take on, you know, roles they're not used to taking um, as the person is going through treatment. And they can feel isolated, too. And I think that what's very important is, first, it's very important that cancer patients are able to communicate with their loved ones about their needs so that their needs can be met, but also that their partners um, are also able to communicate their needs and also get the kind of support they need. And I think that it's often that caregivers are overlooked in, um, in the cancer experience. So, um, in ter- and, and we see that they, ex- they report very high levels of, d- of distress, caregivers and their loved ones and partners, and they also, they also, they also have their own health risks on the line. And I think that in thinking about cancer and really making healthy choices, um, it's a key, a key element to, I think, successful relationships is communication, and people can need support around that. So, Joanne, you were, you were, as you said, you were young. You were in your 20s when you were diagnosed with cancer. Were you married at that time? Did you have children? How did you, as a young person, how did you think about relationships and how did you think about um, your future having been diagnosed at such a young age? Well, I was very fortunate that I was engaged at the time, mm-hmm. and I have a wonderful husband who, who, who has supported me throughout uh, this journey, but... I think that um, that if you talk to him, you would hear that you know too that they were that there was a way in which he he was isolated. He didn't know how he could best help me, and and um, I think that what has really helped us is being able to talk, being able to communicate to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for other, for for young adult cancer survivors, there are many challenges. You may have to think about fertility issues. Yes. You may have to think about if you're dating, you know, you're losing, you lose your hair. How do you manage that? Young adult cancer survivors actually have very special needs, and it's a new area of development in thinking about what are the particular needs for young cancer survivors or as they as um, they think of, you know, they they think about how they're going to manage their life, you know, if they're often starting careers, starting professions, wanting to start a family, wanting to date. Cancer presents many challenges to all those things, and I think it's important for us to think about how we can best support them. Mm-hmm. Great, great comments, great comments. Um, I, I also want to get to this question, Mitch, about... Um, Cancer, we, we talk a little bit about cancer being thought of as maybe more of a, a, a chronic illness, or we know that people are living longer uh, sometimes with, with uh, multiple uh, occurrences of cancer. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges that people face if, they're, if, if, they, if they've been through this, but then they're diagnosed with, with perhaps another condition uh, on top of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, it really fits 
all of this, I mean, fits nicely into really these, this big idea of the ability to communicate with your doctor and your family. I thought, you know, Joanne's comment about the impact on the entire family uh, begins to address um, this wave and, and the wave of what it means to be thinking about cancer as a chronic illness. And it means that, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, you know, we thought of cancer as a, as a death sentence. Mm-hmm. So, so just for a moment, even that you use the term, Kim, chronic illness, it's yeah. almost like a non sequitur. Wait, something's yeah. confusing. But today we have over 12 million cancer survivors, and it's only going to grow. And so we have to think about, for a patient and a family, that there may be natural or normal conditions that evolve or emerge over time, some of which may be a side effect of the treatments themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such an important question because let's just take this issue of side effects from treatment of of it being a long-term chronic illness. Well, if cancer was a death sentence, well, you didn't have to worry about a long-term problem. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, if it's a chronic illness, well, some of the side effects of treatment that folks face are neuropathies or tingling in the, in, in the extremities and their, uh, uh, their feet and their hands, and it leads to difficulties in, in tearing out normal tasks of daily living. Some folks experience heart-related problems as a result of chemotherapy. And yet that takes us back to not only the relationship to the family and its impact of long-term care, but also your relationship to your doctor. And that's it, because being able to communicate more clearly based upon information or facts, what might be the long-term late effects of the treatments might help you and your doctor choose the best treatments for you. Mm-hmm. And, and so the question is so important, and there's not a simple answer, but the answer we keep going back to is these relationships and communication and information as support and being empowered and carrying that as the essential tool in your care plan. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent information, Mitch, excellent advice. Um, on, on, on Frankly Speaking About Cancer today, we are talking about uh, coping with cancer. We're talking about the impact of cancer diagnosis on not only on the patient but on family, on friends, uh, and really how to become an educated patient, how to become an empowered patient in the face of a cancer diagnosis. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've discussed quite a bit on today's show on what you can do to cope well with cancer. Uh, as we all know, cancer comes with many side effects and sometimes results in a recurrence where, where the disease uh, can actually come back. Um, Joanne, there's a term that we, we hear sometimes called repeat trauma. Explain to us this idea of repeat trauma and why do people affected by cancer need to be prepared to go through this and, and, and how can they really do that? Great question, Kim. Um, you know, I think we just can all think about what a shock it is to to the person who's diagnosed with cancer and the whole system, all the, their friends and family, all those close around them. And we can think about that in terms of a trauma. You know, it, um, one day you're walking along, you're feeling great, you're doing fine, and the next day you find out, oh, my goodness, I've got a diagnosis of cancer, and life changes from that point on. And I think about this, I guess, from my perspective, a long-term, you know, again, from my own perspective, 20 years out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had many times, you know, just, you know, having to go back, you know, I've got screening every year, I've got to see my oncologist, and sometimes those experiences can trigger, you know, sort of worries, concerns, oh, my goodness, am I, you know, is, am I going to find something? Are they going to find something? I mean, that's always the question, is when is the shoe going to drop? Um, it can even be a simple thing as, you know, getting a fever. Um, mm-hmm. no, um, no longer um, necessarily is a fever just simply a fever. Maybe mm-hmm. it means something else. Maybe it means that I'm, um, I'm sicker than I am. Maybe it means the cancer's coming back. These are normal responses. I mean, um, and I think over time, um, we, each person, each individual gets to understand themselves and, you know, uh, knows what happens when a, when a trigger comes, and they can sort of see the little roller coaster, knowing that they're going to be, you know, going down for a while, and then they'll come back up. Um, at least I can say that for myself. But I think it's really important that um, we understand 
that, you know, going for a root, what may be a routine mammography for someone who's had a diagnosis of cancer. Mm-hmm. It's not so routine. It's not so routine. Yeah. Yes. Right. And I think that we, we need to be, in the system, we need to be sensitive to those needs. And, um, and you know, someone who's too worried, someone who, for whom that a screening, like a mammography screening, can be so scary, they may avoid the screening. And yeah. there are, you know, health implications and risks with that. So yeah. it's important that we are aware of what the impact of, you know, these triggers are on people and how we can help them mm-hmm. over the long run. Great. Fantastic advice. Um, I, we are moving towards the end of our show, but I'm going to ask you both this question, and I'm going to ask Mitch to... Oh. To uh, to respond first, but Mitch, if there's any advice you could give to someone who's just been diagnosed with with cancer, what would that be? You know, you're diagnosed today. This is your starting point. Um, what do you need to do? What What are the first steps that you need to take? Well, I, I think as we've been saying on this program today, cancer is not a death sentence. There are many, many survivors. There's 12 million today. Number one, information. Education is power. Utilizing the tools of, of, of that piece with your family, empowering you to talk to your doctor more fully about what your own personal needs are, what the treatment options are, and, and the course of care. Mm-hmm. From our perspective, the way we've been thinking about this, information is power, information is support, information Set the stage mm-hmm. for good care. Mm-hmm. Joanne, do you want to chime in uh, on that? We have a little bit of time to yes, I'd say address that question. I would just reiterate what Mitch is saying. And one thing that I would add is there's no reason to go it alone. Mm-hmm. I think that many times we, we uh, can feel isolated, particularly when we're feeling vulnerable. You know, such as when you get a diagnosis of cancer, or even during treatment, or even afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think there are wonderful resources out there in the community, you know, and online, where people can connect with other people who are going through similar challenges. And I think that uh, I cannot underscore enough about how meaningful that can be to to be able to talk to someone else who is also going through it and how empowering it can be, how much we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And so that would be my, there's no, my one bit of advice is no need to go through it alone. Mm-hmm. You know, Mitch, I've heard patients say that, you know, they're in the, in the doctor's office, the doctor says, mm-hmm. you, you have cancer, and then the screen kind of goes blank. Yeah. They don't hear anything, anything after that. So how do, how, do we, how do we look at the idea that information is power, but yet, boy, oh boy, I'm at a place where I just can't yeah. absorb that information right now. Yeah, that, that that's so so true, Kim. And and th- there are, of course, ways to uh, manage that. In particular, um, bringing a loved one uh, with you to the doctor appointment mm-hmm. is uh, a straight ahead way of making sure that whatever information is conveyed can be corroborated. Some sort of, for some folks, they'll even bring a tape recorder because it's just so hard to process information. And what we've learned from our educational programs and really from our patients and families is that sometimes it takes several times before you can really process the information. And as as Joanne was saying, you know, the idea, the the big idea of not going it alone 
is sometimes it's just easier to hear it from others who are going through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So there's one level of the information that happens in the doctor's office and trying to process that with your family or loved one. There's another way that information gets acquired or learned or by vicariously, indirectly, mm-hmm. by hearing others ask questions that you've already had because sometimes you don't even know the questions to ask. Yeah. And, and you have to, you know, and, and you need a little distance. And it doesn't have to happen in one minute or one day that there's got to be some time, even with the urgency, to sort through how you want, you want to go through this treatment and, and that that's your right and that's all of our collective responsibility together to empower patients. So just kind of slow down for a minute and get, try, to, try to get a plan in place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Joanne, just quickly on the issue of, um, of, 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 of children, I know sometimes people struggle with what should they tell their children, how much should they reveal to them, and it kind of depends on their age and things like that. Any, any quick tips on that, on talking to children about cancer? I think, you know, again, it all depends, and that's, that's a big question, Kim. Yeah, I We know. could do a whole <laughs> show on that. Absolutely. Um, I think the key, it goes, to, again, to communication. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're talking to children, it's important to listen to them, too. Yeah. To really listen, because they often will lead the questions. Yeah. And I think that they want to know what's going on, because... Uh, um, they know when something's you know, wrong. They know when something's wrong. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think I think you don't the attention needs to be given not to overwhelm them, yeah. but attention really needs to be given to include them and to listen to them and hear them. And really look for like an age appropriate way to right to talk about the situation. And there are resources out there for that too. For, for that as well, to how to how to talk to kids about this because mm-hmm. I you know we talked a lot today I think about relationships and about communication, and it seems like that's, um, uh, you know, for, for a lot of folks, a pretty critical part of how they're going to get through this experience. Mm-hmm. Joanne? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank um, both of you for, for joining us today for the show. I think it's been um, an incredible uh, conversation just talking about, you know, how to cope with the disease, talking about relationships, talking about communication. Um, I, I just want to tell folks a little bit about uh, the wellness community. We are an international nonprofit organization. We have uh, free programs of support and education for people with cancer, people with all cancers, uh, and their loved ones. We're serving people at uh, all stages of their disease and illness. Um, we have 24 centers across the United States where we do support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. And again, these services are free for anybody with cancer. Um, If you want to find out more about our programs, about where our centers are across the country, um, I would encourage people to visit our website at www.thewellnesscommunity.org or you can call our toll-free line, which is 888-793-WELL, W-E-L-L. Um, we want to dedicate today's show uh, to all of the researchers and individuals involved in putting together the 2007 Institute of Medicine report to really highlight the importance of uh, support for all people with cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 